also in the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, there the instructions around the first foundation of mindfulness is to know that there is suffering. When there's suffering, to really know it. And this expression to know is a very special one because it doesn't mean kind of just kind of you know, know in some general, generic kind of way. It means to know with some clarity, to know with some specificity, some kind of, in the knowing itself, there's a kind of a presence that is maybe even free of the experience. It's very clear, kind of you bring a kind of conscious, deliberate kind of sense of knowing, oh yeah, this is what's going on. So the instruction is to know. Elsewhere, the Buddha says that um, each of the Four Noble Truths has a, an activity, an action, or sometimes said a duty, that the practitioner has in relationship to that noble truth. And the, the, first, the first noble truth, the responsibility, or the duty, or the activity, is to know it, to understand it. To really know, really understand suffering. So this is, means you, know, you turn towards it, and really get to know it. You don't skim off it, you don't ignore it, you don't deny it. But really, what is this? So the bumper sticker for Buddhists is, I stop for suffering. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wouldn't go too far? <laughs> you, you might go farther than most people. <laughs> um, that's what the Buddha did. He went pretty far, but he stopped for suffering. And um, so the... Um, um, so what I tried to convey this morning so far, both in my little talk and also in this meditation, is that um, turning towards suffering and being present for it and really offering it our presence, um, ideally is done uh, after a certain level of pre- preparation. So you're, you're already calm and stable and relaxed a little bit. And it's a world of difference if you can do that versus if you do it if you're agitated and anxious and everything. So, you know, I don't know if you could follow the guided meditation, but to kind of get settled into the body, to get calm, to get, find some sense of ease in the practice. And then from that place of calm or settleness or ease, to then, it's a, whole, it's a different game, it's a different way, of, it has a different meaning to turn towards suffering and be present for it. And, um, and hopefully all of you could find some suffering to connect to. Um, the idea is that uh, until you're full, fully enlightened, uh, somewhere in your psyche you'll find something which um, qualifies as suffering, even though you might not normally be aware of it. It's deep down inside. And um, so what I hope is that you kind of sense so this of turning towards and uh, experiencing suffering, maybe in a very different way than you normally would do it. Was that the case for some of you, or was it? What was it like to do that? Was it different than how you normally experience suffering? Or? Anybody want to say a few things? Terry? Well, it felt like an imposition. Imposition. On my sense of calm and well being. It felt very external. The suffering. Yeah, uh-huh. it's pulling me away from this preferred state. Okay, so so you had a preferred state. You didn't want to kind of go and look towards the suffering. What was there suffering in the system? Or you had to, you had to kind of manufacture it? Um, the only 
in the moment suffering. There was there was some physical mm-hmm. bodily suffering. That was the only suffering that was that was right there. Mm-hmm. And, and then I had to reach out and kind of look. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can understand that if you like in the position, uh, could you feel it also that there's some benefit in from that place of calm, looking at suffering. Oh yeah, it was it was really beneficial. Yeah. And how was it beneficial? Or how was it different than how it would usually? Well, it was more balanced. Much more balanced. So sort of this wonderful sense of calm. And there's this little suffering. (laughs) I don't know if it put it more in perspective, but it um, it it felt like it was just this little bit of suffering. There's this greater Mm -hmm. sense of well-being available Mm -hmm. to me. Great. Thank you. Now, that that sense of it, this is an imposition, um, that, that that also I imagine is a is a is a variety of suffering. Well, imposition may have not been the right word. Okay. Um, I had more of a sense of you know here's this that, that it was minor. I mean it was really minor okay. relative to. Yeah, I can well imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So Ursula. It was a really a new idea, a feeling for me, although I had read it, of course, in many books and heard Dharma talks, but my uh, habitual reaction uh, is to, um, to run away from, because I need to live my life and I can't be, you know, I can't be bothered and I don't have time. And, I, and to really bring calmness and really stay with the idea that this is what, ha- this is what it's like. And to surround it with this kind of equanimity uh, was completely new to me. I mean, on a on a really uh, visible Great. level. Wonderful. So, it, yeah, thank you. For me, it felt twofold. One, um, it was a phys- physical. My leg was, you know bothering me but it put a distance to it and then um, I'm in the midst of some family crisis and it put a it, it felt like a cooling of the fire and it was it was great great so, great. so bringing that kind of presence to the that fire, that sense of suffering, cooled it, calmed it. Right. Beautiful, thank you. Um, at first I thought, okay, I know my main source of suffering, that's what I'll be addressing. And, um, and uh, uh, I went nowhere near that. Instead, I became very, very um, relaxed, but I felt this current of um, physical unease 
as a result of some emotional unease in like around my upper tummy or heart area. And it was actually, um, I was able to turn towards it, but um, just a little. And because it was new, uh, sort of new, um, but it was, um, it felt very profound um, and a little scary. Um, and inevitably, um, I sought to um, intellectually articulate what what was this, and I made a little headway in that arena, and then just pulled back and tried to just sit there with it and see if it would go away, and it didn't go away. <laughs> but so that it was a it was a new adventure for me. Right. Thank you. Maybe be careful that wanting it to go away is another form of suffering, and that's one thing. And the other thing is that. It's uh, fairly common for people like to go on retreat or meditate and have some big issue in their life. They feel like they have to resolve some suffering, and, um, and but then they come on the retreat and it's a whole different thing that this that thing doesn't come up. And um, I think it's a useful uh, attitude to have is that the psyche, the inner life, kind of knows what needs to come up, and it might be different than what you think needs to come up. And just trust that inner process, you know. So, thank you. So, um, I found myself uh, walking down a corridor of doors, um, many, 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 many doors of places that hold different emotional things that are going on with me right now. And every once in a while when you talked about um, getting comfort and relaxing, I could close my eyes and the corridor would disappear. And the what? The corridor would disappear. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, all those, you know, you kind of have all these different spaces in your mind that you can look into, and it's awfully nice to just let them become nothing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And every once in a while when you said something, it broke it into nothing. Great. Thank you. Right right behind you. Um, I was surprised that I could from a place of calm and pleasure in my in, in a meditative place could suddenly drop and discover this place of suffering and that and I was also I, what I was surprised about is that the suffering was around something that I think about a lot a lot but it's never arisen in my meditations and so all of a sudden from this place of calmness there was this deep source of suffering that I've never really sat with before. And um, at this point, I just feel it all over, but I, you know, I, I, I didn't, I haven't realized a sense of benefit from it, more just surprise. Yeah, great. Let me bring up here, Andrea wants. Up here, your friend. A little bit of um, what this person before me was saying. What was new for me is that I was calm before you. I was pretty still. And then you brought the issue of pay attention to your suffering. And then there was, uh, I noticed that there was suffering. And so there was a little bit of, oh, what a shame. <laughs> now I have to sit with it. It was subtle, but, yeah. but, but there was a bit of a disenchantment. 
however, sitting with it, so, so I st- so, and it was mainly physical. So I started to do <coughs> this looking of what other part of my body didn't have suffering. And so I started to just kind of, kind of go back and forth. And, th- and then actually I got even more still because I was able to navigate between those mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. Nice. Very nice. So that was, that was uh-huh. quite exciting for me to discuss. Okay. Great, thank you. So the, um, there is something um, very mature or maturing about having, a, having some ability to turn towards suffering and be really be present for it uh, without being caught by it or reactive to it or lost in it or despairing in it. Um, I think it's something very, very, very uh, kind of a strength of character that can be developed over time that allows a person to, in a wise and helpful way, to connect to suffering, to know, know it's there. And, uh, and that's what the, basically how I understand what the Buddha was, was, one of the things he was teaching was, it's very important to have that maturity where you're actually willing to look at it and be present for it. And it's not uncommon for people to come into Buddhist circles and feel such a relief and happiness that someone is finally talking about suffering. Um, because in their experience, a lot of people are denying it or sugarcoating it or doing something. And someone who just comes into a circles where you can just call it for what it is and don't have to try to pretend it's not there. Just, oh, you're suffering. Yes? Sometimes people will say, well, is there something I can do for you? And um, what I thought was, well, the most, what, what somebody could give to me when I'm suffering, or that I could give to somebody else when they're suffering, is just to not run away. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Just if, if they could just be present with me. And, and the reverse. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you for saying that because um, that wonderful uh, segue into what we're going to do next. So, it was a setup. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, what I'd like to, uh, for you to do is to uh, go into dyads, go and find another partner. And um, and then you're going to take turns. One person is going to be the speaker first, and um, and one person basically the listener. And uh, but the listener is going to ask two questions, and these are repeating questions. You get to ask these over and over again. And um, and the advantage of these kind of repeating questions is that the the, the answer, person's answering responds, and sometimes the obvious or the first things come to mind maybe are not that interesting. But if you keep asking, sometimes it kind of the obvious or the easy answers kind of are finished and the mind begins to kind of explore deeper and deeper new aspects and allow yourself to be surprised, kind of let it be a personal exploration. In, in answering the question, you're not answering the question for the benefit of the person asking it. So don't try to explain something you know the answer, you, you know really well, don't tell a long story and that you know it all, you know the um, It's really for your own sake, you're kind of, it, it's, a, it's a personal exploration on your own that's being witnessed by someone who's prompting you with a question. So we're really habituated, we're trying to explain things to someone else, right? And so don't explain something which you already know all too well. Kind of do the shorthand version, because so you can help yourself kind of explore, explore. So the person who's asking the question is asking two questions. The first question is, 
what is your suffering? And the person who answers responds. It can be very short, it can be whatever kind of answer you'd like to respond. Then the person asking the question says, thank you. It's very important. Say, thank you. Pause for a moment. And then ask the second question, which is, um, what's, what, is that, what does it feel like, that suffering? What's the felt sense of that suffering? So, what's it feel like, that suffering? How is it experienced? How is that suffering really experienced in your real body, in your experience, immediate experience of yourself? So, what, is it, what, is that what does the suffering feel like? The person says something, and then the very important next step is you say, thank you. And then you pause a moment and you say, uh, what is your suffering? Thank you. What does it feel like? Thank you. So, what is your suffering? Thank you. What's it feel like? Thank you. Pause. What is your suffering? And it goes on like that. And, um, and uh, I could well imagine that some of you are now feeling very uncomfortable. <laughs> You're suffering by this idea of I have to talk to someone and share this. So you can talk about that. I'm suffering around this. Um, and um, now there might be sufferings that uh, you have that comes to mind that you don't feel comfortable sharing with someone else. And it, you, you don't have to say something you're not, you're not willing or feel comfortable enough to talk about. This is not, you don't have to confess you know, your darkest secrets here and the things you're willing. Uh, so, you, you know, bring something up, but, um, but uh, you don't have to cross a line to a place where you, don't feel, you start feeling really uncomfortable sharing this with someone maybe you don't even know here. Uh, is that understandable? So you, you're, all, you're allowed to, you know, to limit what you say. You don't have to be, spill everything. And, um, and the person who's listening, your job is really to um, just listen, be, be witness, be present, not turn away, not try to escape, not try to fix, not try to say, well, have you thought about this? <laughs> you know, you know. And, um, and don't kind of put it off for later. You know, I know I can't say it now, but later I'm going to give the person a list of solutions. Your job is just really to listen and be present for it and to offer your respect and appreciation and the thank you is really important. Thank you for you know for sharing that. Or just thank you. So is that the instructions clear enough? And um, so um, uh, why don't you find a partner that you would like to do this with? No, you'll stay with that partner for you go back and forth between those two people. What's happening? Being simple.
So we've kind of, in a sense, begun our journey here today with this. It's the beginning point. And um, there's a poem that I didn't bring with me by Rumi that goes something like, uh, talks about um, the, kind of the paradox of reversal. Is it, it's an image of people who go towards, <coughs> dive into the cool, refreshing pond and their head comes up in the fire. And those people who dive into the fire, their head comes out <coughs> in, the, in the cool, refreshing pond. There's something very can be very wise if it's done in the right way. Uh, it's a big, big caveat in the right way about going into our, the suffering, being present for it, and then finding the way through it. As we were, as you were sitting having a discussion, uh, Kate came in, joined our group, so, and uh, she handed me this article, which seemed very appropriate for serendipitous so that you should come just now. And uh, it, the title is "People Who Fear Pain Are More Likely to Suffer It." And it says that um, there's, ma- there's a lot of variation in how people experience pain, degree of pain. And they're thinking that, um, that um, fear and anxiety about pain may account for a great deal of the individual variation in how much pain we feel. Um, and so they did these uh, MRI studies of the brain and where we experience pain and where we experience fear. And they correlated the degree of pain to the degree of fear that people feel. And um, so how we relate to our suffering has a lot to do with, our relationship to suffering has a lot to do with the degree to which we feel it, how we relate to it, the intensity of it. And part of uh, uh, growth uh, or development in Buddhist spiritual life is learning how to have a very wise relationship to our suffering and our pain so that we don't compound it and add to it by fear or anxiety or other kinds of reactivity. And one of the ways I like to think about this wiser relationship to suffering or pain is to have a very simple relationship to it, to learn how to be present for it in a very, very simple way, not interpreting it or not projecting or not imagining what it all means, but just here it is, just be very, very simple towards it and have the ability to be present for it in a very simple way. Um, but one of the things that gives, um, that creates fear and anxiety around suffering is not having a sense that it's a, there's a path through it, not having a sense that there's a possibility of relief from it or rele- release from it. And one of, the, one of the functions of the Four Noble Truths is to, is to not just say there's suffering, but to say that there's other possibilities too to suffering. There's a path through the suffering and there's a way you can go, you know, you go into the fire and you'll come out the other end, you'll come out through the cool, refreshing water. There's a path through it. And, um, so the first, in a sense, the first step of this fourfold path here is to understand, be present for suffering. So this is the beginning of our journey today. And um, so maybe it's a good time to take a, a short break to go to the bathroom and things before we continue. And I'd like to uh, request that we keep the break in silence. And um, and there are, you know, four bathrooms in the building. You can use the upstairs bathroom now. If you go, if there's a line down here. If you go through the library there and up the spiral staircase, there's a bathroom up there as well. And um, so we'll start again at 11.30. Thank you.
<laughs> sure. Okay. So, um, this is uh, volume one of uh, three volumes about the same size of a very famous Mahayana Sutra. Uh, and um, it's a scripture that belongs to a different tradition than the Theravada tradition. tradition. And um, this is an amazing text. It's kind of, uh, it's like if you really get into it, you read it and really get into it, it's like tripping on acid. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> but you have to really let your imagination go. And... and um, it's called the Avatamsaka Sutra, the flower ornament scripture. It's very, uh, and there's one chapter of it, which is about the Four Noble Truths. And um, what it does in this chapter is it basically says that um, in every world system, there are many, you know, there's many worlds in this huge infinite universe of ours. There are other galaxies or world systems where they're populated by living beings and we don't know about them yet you know the, our astronomers but um, apparently in this phantasmagoric text someone knew about them and so uh, they um, said in, basically says in every world system they have the Four Noble Truths but what they call the Four Noble Truths so the, how they define it the words for it are different in each system so there's a world system, a world called endurance. And there the first noble truth is called um, um, wrongdoing, oppression, change, clinging to objects, accumulation, thorn stabbing, dependence on the senses, deceit, the place of cancer, ignorant action. And then in... Um, Anyway, the point I want to make is that uh, and, uh, there's many different words, many different ways of describing these Four Noble Truths. So if you're not happy with um, <coughs> the way that the Buddha worded them, <coughs> you can reword them for yourself in other ways. Um, <coughs> the, um, the cause of suffering, the second Noble Truth, and the world endurance is called bondage, disintegration, attachment to things, false consciousness, pursuit and involvement and conviction, the web, fancified conceptualization, uh, or, uh, uh, yeah. Um, in this world, there are four quadrillion such names to express the four noble truths. <laughs> Nowadays, they have computers, I guess, are big enough to handle all those names. <laughs> Four quadrillion. I'm not sure what that is. Um, in accord with mentalities of sentient beings to cause them all to be harmonized and brought to peace. And nice, the function of all these names is to help us out so we can connect to it in a way that brings harmony and peace. What in this world is called the holy truth of suffering 
In the other world is called the sense of striving and seeking, or not being emancipated, or the root of bondage, or doing what shouldn't be done, or contending and struggling in all manner of situations, or total lack of power to analyze, or being dependent on, or extreme pain, or hyperactivity, what is called the holy truth of the origin of suffering is called following birth and death, habitual attachment, or burning, or continuous revolving, or corrupt senses, or continuing existence, evil behavior, emotional attachment, the source of illness, or categorization. In other words, uh, uh, the second noble truth is called corruption, ignorance, a sharp blade, taste of destruction, revenge, not doing one's thing, bad guidance, increased darkness, ruining darkness. What's called in a different world, the uh, second noble truth is called um, no real thing, only having words, not pure, place of birth, grasping, baseness, a heavy burden, producer, roughness. In another world, the second noble truth is called names, endless, different sets, not to be loved, able to grab and bite, crude things, emotional attachment, receptacle or stirring. In another world, it's called um, greedy attachment, wrong accomplishment, evil of access, nothing that can be explained, nothing that can be apprehended, continuous revolving in circles. In another world, it's called um, decay, confusion, regression, powerlessness or loss, opposition, disharmony, doing, grasping, wishing. In another world, broad ground, tendency, distance from wisdom, obstruction, fear, laxity, attachment, ignorance, ignorance being master of the house, continuous bonds. In another world, it's called uh, uh, wrong timing, untruth, bottomless, possessiveness, departure from morality, afflictions, narrow views, accumulation of defilement. Somewhere else it's called anxiety, the poison of anger, conglomeration, selfishness, mixed poison, empty names, opposition, imitation, astonishment. Astonishment. Another world it's called that which binds, arising in every thought, extending to the future, combination, discrimination, blown by the wind, concealment. So it goes on and on. Now this is translated from into English from Chinese, which is translated from Sanskrit. So I don't know exactly what the original is. So I don't know what impact it had for me to read that, but the idea is to suggest that there are many, many you know, quadrillions of words for these. And so the question is, how can you find your word? How can you find your description? Or what is it that's personal? And one way to take this here 
is that it's, what's, it's pointing back to the fact that each of us has, is our own world and each of us has to personalize this and find not, not try to Im- impose teachings from outside of our, onto ourselves and make us fit the teachings, but rather find out how the teachings manifest or appear in our own life and to find our own language, own vocabulary for that. So uh, these Four Noble Truths are kind of you know, very, you know, a very simple expression, but maybe diff- in different circumstances, different times, and different people, uh, different um, words give meat, give expression, give truth to this. Just to say, there's, I'm suffering, I'm clinging, that's pretty abstract. It doesn't really have any, you know, you don't learn much about a person, you know, if you just say, you know, suffering and clinging. But if you, uh, if you start, start putting kind of description, what is it really like? What's, what's, what is your suffering, really? In, of the quadrillion of words for suffering, which words apply today? Of the quadrillion of words that apply to uh, the second noble truth, the clinging or the thirsting, which is the arising to suffering, what is that? So the second noble truth is um, the, the, the origination, the cause, the conditions that give rise to suffering. And this is defined as tanna. And tanna uh, literally means thirst. And I think of it as drivenness, um, uh, kind of like thirst, like a, a compul- compulsivity. There's a compulsion in the mind where the mind is act- acting unwisely in a way that, that causes suffering. Kind of a, a drivenness of the mind or of the heart. And there's a tautology in this. Uh, tautology is a philosoph- philosophical term that means that uh, something defines itself. So you kind of ask for a definition and the definition doesn't really tell you much except that um, so like, uh, I don't know what tautology exactly, maybe some of you philosophers know better, but like um, um, if you, uh, uh, water is wet. Maybe that's, I don't know if that's exactly works as a tautology, but anyway, the tautology, the, the, the kind of uh, loop here is that um, uh, the suffering that's defined in the Four Noble Truths is only understood if you understand the Second Noble Truth. So it's not all suffering that's being talked about here. It's that suffering which is born from clinging. That's what Buddhism is addressing. So whatever suffering is born from clinging, that's what's being talked about here. And if you know of suffering which is not born from clinging, then that the Four Noble Truths is not addressing that. Does that make sense? And um, now, to be fair to the Buddha, I think suffering is pretty, you know, the clinging produced suffering is pretty comprehensive. But, um, so we're talking about, um, so clinging, that suffering would be caused by clinging. A, a very simple reformulation of the Four Noble Truths, which is already pretty simple, even simpler one, would be, if you cling, you will suffer. If you stop that clinging, that suffering will stop. Pretty simple, huh? If you cling, you're guaranteed to suffer. Money back, <laughs> money back guaranteed. Yes? What is an example of non-clinging suffering? Well, that's... Um, it depends uh, you know, how we want to define these words. But so with physical pain, some people will call suffering. And so... Um, in Buddhism, we wouldn't call, you know, at least in my vocabulary, it's, 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 there's more to this than 
I'm giving you kind of a gillism here. If you really get into what the Buddha had to teach, you find it's a little bit more nuanced than what I'm saying here. Um, but um, so you have to take that into account. But as I'm saying here, um, physical pain doesn't have to entail clinging and the suffering that comes from clinging. And in fact, the Buddha reported after he was enlightened had physical pain, but he seemed to be quite equanimous at peace with it. And then, uh, and then there, can, uh, uh, there seems to be a certain kind of emotional pain that can exist as well, that maybe even enlightened people feel. Uh, maybe, uh, if your best friend just died and you're walking down the sidewalk whistling Dixie, something is wrong. <laughs> you know, I think it's appropriate to feel certain kind of certain certain kind of uh, uncomfortable sensations. You know, something something feels heavy or something. And um, so, there's a certain kind of emotional pain can also be uh, free of suffering. We often associate every kind of pain with suffering. We think we have to get rid of it. But I think wise living acknowledges that there is a certain level of pain that comes with being a human being. And maybe the pain is, it, some of these pains is not a problem in and of itself. The problem with certain kinds of pain is how we relate to it. And we might cling or resist in relationship to that. So I might stub my toe, and that's pain. But the real suffering is not the, the toe hurting. The real suffering is that I berate myself for being so clumsy. So that's, the, that's where the clinging comes in. So does that answer the question? Yes. And so, but exactly where the line is between suffering which is you know, clinging-based and not clinging-based, um, I think a, a useful attitude you know, is kind of is probably most of it has some quality of clinging involved. But it doesn't have to. And it's, I think knowing it doesn't have to is very helpful. So clinging, grasping, drivenness, compulsivity, um, um, holding on, resisting, bracing yourself against something, are all kind of uh, kind of uh, synonyms in a sense, or, or variations of this idea of thirst. In, in calling it thirst. Uh, it's kind of like not a technical word exactly. The cause of suffering is thirst, is thirsting. So, you know, you think of yourself, you know, completely um, dying of thirst, the kind of feeling of desperation that goes in there. Um, or the idea, the expression is thirsting for power. You know, there's kind of this kind of, the word thirst is very powerful, a sense of drivenness. And, um, so the, the second, in, in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the instructions is, know when there's thirst, when there's, know that's thirst. When there's drivenness, know it. Just know it. Just know it. Elsewhere, the Buddha says, that in relationship to um, uh, the thirsting, the grasping, or the clinging, or the craving, the holding on, the duty, the activity that we can do in relationship to it, is to let go of it to let go of the clinging, let go of the thirst. That's, that's the activity that we do in relationship to it. So when to just know it for what it is, and that's all we should do, and when to let go of it is part of the function of wisdom. Sometimes it's better to actually not let go of things too quickly, because if you let go of things too quickly, you don't get, don't, don't get to know it well. And there's, I think there's uh, something really important in certain kind of complexes of what we have to take our time to let go can be uncomfortable, we might want to want to get rid of it quickly. We might have the ability to let go quickly, but in letting go quickly, we don't really understand it really deeply. 
So in my own practice, I found it very helpful, very important at one point, not to let go of anger. At some point, I'd gotten, in my years of practice, I'd gotten really good at letting go of anger. I could, I could at times let go of very easily. And, um, and I was given the teaching and instructions, don't do that anymore. Um, you know, let, it, let it hover. I mean, don't, let, it ho- let it hover, let it stay, let it linger, so you can study it and get to know it. And it took a little trick, kind of learn, oh, wait, you know, not to habitually let go. And then, and then, but enough letting go of it, I could study it and go deeper into it and see some of the deeper aspects of uh, my tendency to anger. So, let's sit. grasping it takes, is felt many different ways, the clinging or thirsting or drivenness, sometimes as pressure, sometimes as tension, sometimes as resistance, numbing, closing down, pulling away, attacking. It can be felt physically, the body tightening up, it can be felt mentally with the mind some way or other under pressure or tightening up or closing down or hyperactivated and it can be felt emotionally certain emotions kind of coursing through with great compulsion or subtle So, connecting to your posture, your body, taking a few long, slow, deep breaths. Exhale, settling in, letting go as best you can. And you might see if you can remember sometime in meditation or some other time in your life where you felt some some quality sense of well-being, settleness, being calm. You can remember what that time was like, what it felt like in your body. Some deep experience of meditation, perhaps. And as you exhale, next two or three exhales, let go into that, as if it's here, present. Kind of let go into, even if it doesn't re-arise, let go into the possibility that it might be here.
and then feeling your body, sensing your body from the inside. Bones, the muscles, the skin. And as you feel your body, is there any way in which your body feels like it's bracing itself? If it's the case, then notice that bracing, like bracing yourself against life or something might happen. Or is there any way in which your body feels like it's pulled in? The shoulders are pulled up or in, some tightness, some holding in your body. Any physical way that you feel held tight, grasping in the hands or the arms or the chest, shoulders or the jaw, the legs, the belly. Just know it now, just feel it. Respectful presence. As it reveals itself to you, it's like you say, thank you, I see you. And then see if you can notice if there's any ways in which in your mind and your thinking, since there's there any pressure or compulsion, is there any tightness, grasping, any particular pattern of thinking which is like Velcro or magnetic pull or drivenness to Keep going into certain directions of your thoughts, from the way of thinking. Is there a tightness or grasping or holding or resistance? In the thinking system, the way you think, where the mind is. Try to be as still as you can, so you can feel your way into this. Is there holding in the mind?
And then what about in your heart, in your emotional being? Is there any way in which your emotions feel like they're driven or held onto with pressure or compulsion? your mind or body or heart is saying, I want this something, I really want it, it has to happen, it has to be different. Or I want something to change, I want something to go away. I really don't like this, this is great. They can be grasping to nice things, comfortable things, they can be grasping to Try to push away uncomfortable things. What's the most common or prevalent sense of drivenness or thirst, compulsion or grasping in your life? And now returning to your breathing, establishing a connection to your breath, perhaps by taking a few long, slow breaths to really maybe make that connection. best of your ability, let go of your concerns with any of this. Just breathe in and out, feeling the rhythm that's established with breathing in and breathing out. 
then over the next few breaths, tune in more fully to the exhale. Exhale away, whatever way your exhale is fine. Just kind of be more sensitive to the feeling, the quality of it, the sense of it. What happens to your in your body as you exhale? Feeling your exhale with kind of a light touch. Each time you exhale, let go. Let go of whatever you can let go of. Let go of your thoughts, the tension in the mind. Let go of tension or holding in the body, feelings or emotions. be a wave of letting go through your body. Let your muscles let go from the bones, the skin let goes from the muscles. gentle, light touch. Let go of your body. Trust letting go so you can let go of even things you didn't even know you're holding on to. Let go deep, deep in your mind, in your psyche. Nothing to be, nothing to accomplish, nothing to defend. As you exhale, letting go. Letting go of the need to let go. 
letting go of the need to do it right. Letting go of any image you have of yourself, idea of who you are or what you should be. Resistance, judgment. As you exhale, let go. Each time you exhale, let go and see if you can let go into the end of the out-breath, some sense of stillness or peace or well-being that needs nothing.
And then now, bring to mind some area of your life where there is suffering. Maybe something that came up in the dyads before. Some area that's important for you. Remember the suffering. Bring it to mind, think about it. And as you consider it, what is the soft, what is the grasping or the clinging or the drivenness or thirst that you're contributing to that suffering? independent of the conditions outside of you that contribute to the suffering, what is it that you add in terms of grasping or clinging or craving or holding, resistance, thirsting, drivenness? Maybe you can feel it, the felt sense of it. Maybe you can see directly what it is. And as you exhale, can you relax, soften, ease off from your clinging or grasping or thirsting or resistance? Ease off of it.
And then take a few long, slow, deep breaths, using the deep in-breaths to feel your body. Feel the connection of your body to your chair or your cushion, the floor. Feeling yourself in this room, taking a few more deep breaths and when you're ready you can open your eyes.